Last week, Pastor Bill concluded the book of Judges with the final verse in the book. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It wasn't because there was no king available. It wasn't because there was nobody to lead. It was really the will of the people that they didn't want to be led. It was They wanted the freedom that comes from just don't tell me what to do. I want to breathe a little bit. I want to spread my wings and fly. I've got a life to live. And, and every time we have a king or we have a judge coming our way or something like that, it just means all the things we have to do, things we can't do that we want to do. There was a restriction that was being balked against by the people of that day. And I guess if we're being honest, we'd say it hasn't really changed, has it? The nature of the human heart is the same as it was then. We find spontaneity to be much sexier in our culture today. The fluidity of things, the availability, just go with the flow, do what you feel like doing at the moment. And, and having to be tied down to things like deadlines or responsibilities or those kinds of things, they're restrictive on our freedoms and that doesn't really bode well for our ability to live life the way we think we should be able to. To do what comes natural has become the ultimate goal in modern thinking. And we hear it everywhere we go, from our kids' movies to our uh, business seminars to our politicians and to our entertainment uh, systems and all these kinds of things that just be true to oneself, that's the highest achievement anyone can attain. And that sneaky humanistic doctrine that comes in and, and slides in under the radar is starting to sound good even to those of us in the church. It tickles something in our sinful natures and says, well, that kind of could work for me. I am a little told, tired of being told what to do. Hopefully you understand where I'm going with this, but I, I appreciate when an athlete says after a, you know, a very successful game, and uh, you know, they've had a great game, their stats are great, or they're victorious or something, so the reporter has a microphone in their face, and they're like, what were you doing tonight? Why did it work for you? Why did it just click? And, and the response oftentimes is from these uh, world-class athletes is they say, the whole game just seemed to slow down for me. Everything looked like it was moving in slow motion, and I felt like I was the only one moving in real time. So if, if everything is moving in slow motion around you, you kind of feel like you can maneuver, you can adjust, you can, you can be spontaneous, and you can react without even thinking about it, really. And, and I hear somebody comment like that, and I think, oh, wouldn't that be awesome to be able to do? And it gives us almost the impression that this athlete pretty much spends the week just sleeping, you know, eating Pop-Tarts and things. I think Pop-Tarts are going to be the theme snack food of the morning. Um, uh, you know, and doing whatever. And then when it's game time, he's just able to be spontaneous and he just reacts. I think of Walter Payton, who is the great Chicago Bears running back. And you see a move like this and you think, oh yeah, I'm sure that just happens naturally, spontaneously, right? And we have a tendency to hear the athletes say, well, I just let the game come to me and it just all clicked. And they are themselves minimizing, as we do, the amount of work that has to go into the gym and the field and all the things they have to do in order to go through the disciplines to even afford the opportunity to be spontaneous. You know, somebody like Walter Payton, no doubt, had opportunities that he had to see these little, little windows in the defensive line, right? These guys are 300 pounds, and all they care about is crushing the dude with the ball. And so, and, and he is just able, he was just able to just respond and, and move and turn on a dime and slip through these tiny little openings. And then when you watch a running back do that, you think, he's got a millisecond to think about this. How is he able to do that? 
And it comes through that, that conditioning, that discipline, that work ethic. And yet all we want to focus on is just how cool it is to be able to do that, react in the moment. But there's always, there's always a, a rock bed of discipline. The ability to do great things in seemingly spontaneous or effortless fashion only comes on the heels of structure and discipline. Just being born with natural talent is not enough. Plenty of people have been born with natural talent that never made it to the pros or maybe made it to the pros that couldn't finish out their career. There's something about that work ethic. There's something about being submissive to the structure or the discipline of the circumstances that have been placed around you. So last month, as we were talking about the the role of leadership and the call that God has on His church to have good, strong leadership... Uh, we have a tendency sometimes to think back, boy, wouldn't it be great if the church just reacted spontaneous like, like they did in Acts when the Holy Spirit was fresh upon them and things just started moving and the multiplication was just happening and it was growing. And it certainly was doing that, but even God said that it would be time for the rules, the restructure, for the ability to stay uh, enduring through the difficult times down the road would require that kind of structure and that discipline. And so enter Paul's instruction to the churches in the New Testament. And Paul certainly isn't the only writer to help the church adjust and strengthen and, and, and adhere to the guidelines, but he is the most prominent writer in the New Testament that talks about, especially to the pastors, the ones that he helped uh, inst- uh, start in these, uh, in these churches and, and establish them. He'd write these letters to them to encourage them to say, it's okay to have these guidelines. You're going to need structure in order for the church to maintain and to grow. And Paul's instruction is really beautiful. I really love the letters of Paul. I find them to be instantly practical, but I also, I'm always caught off guard with how dripping sweet sometimes Paul is because he has a reputation of being a meticulous uh, director, a a great student, a great orator, a great writer, and a a very intellectual person. And yet when you read his letters to to Timothy and to Titus and to others, he's, he's writing these letters that are just kind of like oozing with, with this love as a father would to a child and saying, I, I miss you guys. I want to be with you. You can do this. Hang in there. The world's going to come against you, but don't give in. Stand strong. Stand firm in your faith. And he was so encouraging, but he also balanced out his instruction with guidelines for organizing the assembly. He also brought in a list of rules. Guys, we have to do church this way. It's the only way to strengthen the assembly. Paul, under the Holy Spirit's leadership, recognized that good leadership is going to lead to good church, and good church is what God gave his life for. Not just so it would look good, that it would be entertaining for people, that there would be a a thing for us to plug into like a club, but so that the mission of his love for this dying world would carry out through the local assembly of believers. That is what Jesus Christ gave his life for, to save you and me, and that we would exercise that salvation through the body of the local assembly. It's easy to look around our headlines today. It's easy to look at the state of the church in America and think the church is doomed. Now, I don't know if you think that way. I, I, I think it would be hard not to have at least that fear if you're at all paying attention to the attack on truth and, and the way that culture is going. And it's just pushing like I almost picture we've got all these glass windows outside, right Out, up, up in our hallways and everything. We can see all the way down our walkway. Our entry doors are all glass. Picture just those those glasses being covered with water like a major flood has happened. And it's trying to find its way in. It's seeping through these door openings. It's, it's starting to make cracks on the window 
real. And, and as dramatic as the pictures that may be, that's what I fear is happening with the attack of truth, with the, with the attack on truth. And the church is trying to put their hand up on the window so that they don't break. They're seeing the water run in and they're throwing towels down and we're doing whatever we can to push off the onslaught on the attack of truth. And it's becoming more and more difficult. The days are getting darker. And so as we look at the headlines and we see what's going on, it's easy for us to think, well, the church is doomed. It's not going anywhere. Last month, we had, I had used a phrase that was a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but I really think it illustrates the point in a, in a phrase, a way that we say things today. But the church is really God's baby. The church belongs to the Lord and He finds it so precious and He cares for it so much and He tells us through His Word that He'll never let us slip out of the grip of His hand. No man, including even you and I and our own foibles, would be able to pull us out of the hand of God. God gave His life for the church and He intends to maintain it. Now, we could be arrogant and say that the future of the church is is going to be dependent on how America responds and that might be short-sighted. In fact, I saw an article just a couple weeks ago that said, and, I, and I'm not entirely surprised by this, but it was still hard not to drop your, drop your jaw, that China, communist China, is becoming the fastest growing, the largest Christian nation on the planet. China. I've often teased when we were talking about we homeschool our kids, we've often, I've often teased, sort of, not really, about uh, when, when it's time for them to study a, a second language. I'm like, they should learn Chinese. Think about that. I'm not, I don't think I'm entirely off on that. but So my kids will have lessons starting tomorrow, figure out how to do that. We're going to start collecting all the fortune cookies we can because they do the, on the back, they do the learn a Chinese word. Start there. God has no intention of letting the church die. The American church may be put on the sidelines. The American church may get knocked out of the game because of our complacency and our, and our, and our unwillingness to stand for truth. But God is not going to allow his voice to the world to be squashed. And he chooses to echo that voice through the local assembly, the body of believers. Also in review, God has defined leadership for us. If the church is going to be good based on good leadership, then we should find out from him what, does, what are the qualifications for being a leader. We got into a passage of scripture last month that we're going to start breaking down over the next several months. And um, for, for our purposes this week, we're going to just look at the, the initial uh, verse in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy because it really helps set the tone. Last week, had to spend some time in background this, uh, this uh, last month, and then this month we'll have to do the same thing. And then very, very soon, Lord willing, we'll start breaking down the various um, characteristics of leadership that God is looking for beginning in verse 2 and going straight through to verse 7. In verse 1 of 1 Timothy 3, Paul writes to his young apprentice, he says, it's a trustworthy statement If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. An overseer is not a term that we use a whole lot. We uh, refer in in these days, this day and age, as, as our pastors or our elders. Those are the terms that we are most familiar with. But I think overseer is also a great descriptive word because it really uh, high, uh, it, it emphasizes or underscores the responsibility of the pastor or the elder. To actually be an overseer. Now, in America, we have a tendency to think of an overseeing being sort of like a, a, a position of prestige. There's probably a great temptation to wrap some ego into that and everything. And that certainly does become the case so often. 
But an overseer has various responsibilities. It has, it has some, some aspect that, that when the Bible uh, gives us some clarification on the subject, we can start seeing a little bit more of what God's shepherd or God's overseer or God's elder or pastor is supposed to be. As we break down this word overseer very quickly, I just want to emphasize a few different aspects. This is a very deep word, a very deep office, and, and there would be a lot we could do with this, but unfortunately we won't be able to do a ton, so let's take it for what we can. The first aspect I'd like us to think about when it comes to being an overseer is that of a shepherd. Now, I, I, a lot of pastors, when they start talking about shepherding and, and all that stuff, they can bring in some of their own livestock experience or they've spent the week Googling what it means to be a shepherd or something. I don't have any of that. I'm sorry. I, I, uh, I don't have a, a livestock background. Uh, truth be told, I know we're talking about sheep when we're talking about shepherd, but the whole goat thing still freaks me out. Like, when goats look at you, isn't that a little weird? Like, there's something wrong with their eyes and they're just they're ready to... You know, buck at you and everything. I don't know. And they're little. You could take them down probably, but they're just... I think I'd rather fight wolves than goats. I don't know. There's just... Anyway, that's not in my notes anywhere. Sorry about that. I don't have any shepherding experience is the only point I was trying to make. But at least we've heard enough lessons. Some of you perhaps have had your own personal experience with shepherding or trying to herd livestock and the difficulty that can be with that. And I want to emphasize that, again, this is probably the second month I'm mentioning this. I don't go through the terms of being uh, an overseer or a shepherd in some sort of self-serving motive. You guys don't know how tough we pastors have or, or anything. Let me give a disclaimer that there is, um, with all the folks that are represented in this room, there's a handful of various stresses and difficulties in life. Some things that you guys are going through that I could not relate to. Um, There's a different aspect of shepherding that carries a unique burden, but it doesn't mean to make, uh, there's no intent in making it sound like the pastor's life is tougher than anybody else's. But it is important to highlight what the responsibilities of the elder or the shepherd or the overseer are so that we can all understand how to continue this ministry and do it in strength and with God's guidance. A shepherd is one who takes on the responsibility of the flock. And it's really important to understand this because when... Aren't we struggling or striving to see in the leadership environments that we encounter, whether it be uh, political arenas or whether we go to our jobs and we see our bosses um, fail in some of these areas or, um, you know, wives are waiting for their husbands to step up and be the leader at home or something like that. Any of these kinds of environments, the one ingredient that seems to be missing so much everywhere we look is, is for the leader, the one who has the responsibility, actually take the responsibility of failure either in their administration or in their offices or in their homes and say, I may not be responsible for every person's individual failures. I can't control the whole situation. I can't block all bad things from happening. But if it happens on my watch, I also share the responsibility. I have to take an inward look at what is, what is my leadership doing that is failing the process that allows these kinds of things to happen. Wouldn't that be refreshing just to see more people with the, with the leadership title? Take that and, and, and own that. I, I, won't, I won't go any further than that. We could go off on a lot of political tangents and all that kind of stuff. But I think it's a shared problem in almost every corner of leadership. Just to simply take on the responsibility of those that you are responsible for. 
A shepherd also carries the weight of concern. And concern is that safe biblical word. If I were preaching out of Matthew 6, I would tell you that uh, you're not supposed to worry. You're supposed to just take today's concerns and manage them appropriate for today. Tomorrow will bring a whole new bucket full that you'll have to deal with. So just manage today's concerns. And that is the best biblical guidance and advice and good godly counsel that we can have. So concern is one of those nice, safe words. But if we're all being honest, we'd have to say that concern is so uh, uh, it's so tempting to allow it to just spill into worry. And so often our shepherds, uh, our leaders um, end up carrying the worries of their people as well. And so, um, you know, that ends up becoming a great burden. And that has to be something that's factored into the person who desires that office, as the scripture says. Am I willing to carry the weight of concern, which will so often slip into the weight of stress that comes with not just worrying about my own life, but the lives of the people that I'm responsible for? To make sure that they have the same direction that God wants them to have. To make sure that that they have the same goals in mind that God wants them to have. It's a very difficult thing, especially when you can't make it happen. Dictatorships are so convenient because you can just scare people and say, do this, and they do it. In the church arena, though that leadership, if it's going to be done effectively and biblically in a way that honors God, is a way that allows everybody, every individual to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit and check out the leader through the pages of Scripture and say, is this what God's calling me to do? And there's a human conflict there because in our, in our nature, we want to just kind of make it happen. Come on, guys, let's do this. Let's go. And everyone's like, I'm not really there yet. Some people are way, you know, they're way too far and you're going, come back, come back. And they're like, no, I'm still going. It's hard to manage when when the Holy Spirit is guiding each person individually. And that is the way that the Lord designed it to humble the leader, to help the leader stay in perspective. You can't control all these things. And so a weight of concern is added to the role of being the shepherd. Another key area of being the shepherd is, is looking out into the borders of the trees, looking for that little glint, that eye, that eye glint that the wolf is lurking, that the enemy is right there on the border ready to attack. And so, you know, while the sheep are having a good time or feeling safe or being able to mix it all up and do their ba-ba this and their ba-ba that, you know, the shepherd's usually the one just kind of going, yeah, I hear, I hear what you're saying. I'm just making sure that we're all okay here. You know, you guys just go ahead, keep eating, do your thing. You know, we'll make sure that it's safe. That's the shepherd's responsibility. If the shepherd gets too caught up in all the ba-ba-bas and isn't looking out over all the wool and just kind of going, where's the wolf and where's the danger? Then he is also devoured. And again, that responsibility is on his watch. In Acts 20, 28. Now remember what we said. You go back to the Acts, the book of Acts, and you see how the church formed and you think, boy, that's really where the spirit was. And he was. But then we think, boy, the, the church got somewhat structured afterwards and it, and it looks a little negative. But think about when we go to the Acts a couple of times here in our time together, think about the procedure and the structure that is uh, instituted even as early on as the, uh, the growing church in Acts. In Acts twenty twenty eight, the Bible says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. The shepherd is to carry that responsibility, to carry on the concern, to protect the sheep from danger and also make sure that the sheep are being fed. 
I'll confess my own sins that when uh, Pastor Bill mentions Pop-Tarts earlier in the service or in the announcements or something like that, my, my mouth starts drooling a little bit. And I start thinking about that kind of thing because, man, I could, I, I don't know, I haven't really tried doing it for long periods of time, but I feel like I could live on the junkiest of junk food. All the stuff that's in a sealed up package that's going to live for 40 years, you know, I feel like I could just eat a steady diet of that stuff. I don't. I would like to eat it a lot more. Perhaps my body would reject it instantly, but <clears throat> there's an aspect of what I think I could survive with and what I think tastes good that is completely off base from the knowledge that comes from people that know better of how my body's built and what's best for me. The shepherd has the responsibility of saying, I know what the sheep need to chew on. And so many times we say, but I really want to stay here. I really want to eat this patch over here. And the shepherd's going, it's all, it's, it's not good grass for you. It's not the thing that you need to be eating. And, and we've got some stuff that's over here. It's going to take a little work for us to get there. And we've got to make sure we're all moving together. But this is where you need to be feeding. And so the sheep are so often where we just want to kind of resist that and say, just allow me to move at my own pace and eat what I want. The shepherd has to move things along. He's a director as well. An overseer is a director, somebody who points out, yeah, the best grass may be over on that field and I know that's where we need to go, but I just can't snap my fingers and make it happen. I've got to move a herd along. I've got to make sure I'm making sure the dangers over the hill aren't worse than what we just dealt with here. I've got to also uh, think about the condition and the health and the strength and the rest of my sheep. Is it too soon to move? Are Are they strong enough to relocate? A director points out the best path for effective ministry. So easy for churches to just go, let's do this thing because it's cool. Let's do this thing because some church in Arizona exploded when they did this. And, and then this church in L.A., they do this and all this kind of stuff. And it's so easy to, to get caught up in, in sort of like the branding of church and the, the conduct of the organization in a sense that we very seldom think about the health of the organism. And so the, the overseer is one who takes all those things into account and says, we don't have to be the slickest church on the street. We don't have to do all the things that the people are complaining that we don't do enough of. What is best for the climate and the condition of the sheep that I have been given the responsibility of? And then how do I get them to see that that's what's best for them as well? An overseer is also a deflector because, you know, when you say no... Or when you say, this isn't really what we're called to, this isn't what we're all about, sometimes you take some heat for that. And unfortunately, the resistance isn't always from outside the walls of the church, although the world certainly has a lot of opinions of what the, world, of what the church should be doing, don't they? You church people, you should be doing this, this, and this, and this. Well, why don't you come and join us and help us do it? Oh, no, it's not my thing. But since you claim to be all holy and compassionate, this is what you should be doing, with no knowledge of the Scriptures. And we can put that in its place and we can say, oh, that's the way the world's supposed to function. But when it starts coming from the church and God's people are starting to say, I don't really like the way this direction is going or I don't really like, you know, that, that we're being asked to do this, that or the other thing. Sometimes the shepherd has to be, the overseer has to be girded up and strengthened so that when those arrows come, it's a responsive compassion and education and leading the sheep along where they're supposed to be. It's a very difficult balance, and it's not something to be taken lightly. In fact, in verse 1 of of chapter 3, I like the phrase that he says, that, that Paul writes to Timothy. He says, if a man is desiring this office, it's a fine work that he wants to do. I love that Paul didn't say, if he's desiring this office, he should really do it because it's a piece of cake. If he really desires this office, it's what he should be doing because it's where his greatest avenue for popularity is going to come in. Instead, fine is a word of value. It's, it's a worthy calling that he's pursuing. It's a fine 
calling. Picture it like, like describing fine china. Not something that's easy, not something that's flimsy, but something that's of great value. And so the one who claims to want to be an overseer has to take these things into account. Paul writes to Timothy, he says, This is why I remind you to fan into flames the spiritual gift God gave you when I laid my hands on you. For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. Now, Paul was also in prison at the time he was writing this, and he might have thought that perhaps it was a shameful knock on Timothy who, who had a mentor who he was trying to identify with, got captured and thrown into prison, and, and Paul is living this, this very uh, basic existence through suffering and starvation and all these things. And Paul might have been thinking, maybe Timothy's taking this as a little bit of a reflection on the strength of his calling and the ministry that he's being tasked to do. So he finishes his his thought. He says, so never be ashamed to tell others about our Lord. And don't be ashamed of me either, even though I'm in prison for him. With the strength God gives you, be ready to suffer with me for the sake of the good news. The one who is desiring the office of the overseer also has to take an honest assessment and says, not only am I asked to stand up against the resistance that comes like that water rising over the window levels, but I also have to be willing to not be the most popular person in my church, to be the one that maybe the church doesn't necessarily agree with everything I'm saying and be willing to deal with that, to to reflect and ask the Lord, Lord, am I wrong in this? But also be willing to take some of those arrows. If the leader can't take heat from his own people, how is he going to stand up to Satan and to the world who is constantly trying to find a way in through every crevice that that water can come in? So the role of the overseer is not just based on something that, you know, this person's a good speaker or they seem to know a lot about the Bible or any of these things. This is a very weighty calling that Paul is charging Timothy. Find people built for this. Find people ready for this kind of calling. And this is an office. Not only is it an office of an, uh, not only is it just a, ta- a task of an overseer, but it's an office, something to be elected to. Again, we go back to spontaneous acts. In Acts 14.23, the Bible says, When they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them, the elders, to the Lord in whom they had believed. This is an actual elected office. And all of our elders that are here are here because we have appointed them. And as the church gets bigger, it's harder for everybody to know who the appointees are. But, you, but we certainly throw it out there to say, is there anybody that knows anything about this elder that would disqualify him from serving in this position? We want the church body to have a say in that. It's an elected office. What's great about it being an elected office, not that this is the reason it is. I don't know what God, why God instituted it as an office. But I certainly see that one of the practical aspects is there wasn't a willy-nilly or sensual selection that allowed people just to take on the responsibility because they thought it would look cool to be a leader. So, hey, maybe I'll be an elder today or I'll be a pastor and just kind of come up and do my thing and I'll lead. And then once it started getting uncomfortable or unpopular or a little harder to see the, the long-term vision, they said, it wasn't really my bag anyway. I think I'm going to go you know, sing in the choir or go change diapers or something anyway. So it wasn't really what I was cut out for. An office... Uh, goes through the process of, of proper selection, of, of, of checking out a lifestyle and a background of the individual. So it makes it a little difficult to get in, and it also makes it a little difficult to get out. Because you're not just able to just jump out because you don't feel like being an elder today. 
And so God in his wisdom has given us these orders and these procedures in order to determine that the length of the church, the stability of the church would survive for a length of time instead of just being something strictly built on emotion. And so that is the form that God has given to us. But just in a couple minutes, let's look at a couple of the statements that are here in, uh, in, verses, in verse 3-1 and talk about what the qualifications of the leader are. Remember that in this passage, verses 1-7, through seven, we are not breaking down what makes a good leader a good leader in terms of the how-to's. If you want to lead a church well, do this and do this and do this. It's not in this passage. All it's saying is, if you're going to have leaders in your church, which you'll need, make sure they have this in their, uh, in their qualification list. So Paul says to Timothy, it's a trustworthy statement. And I love this phrase because Paul only uses it in the pa- what are called the pastoral epistles. These are the letters that he wrote to those young pastors that he needed to strengthen. And he uses this phrase, it's a trustworthy statement, only five times. And he uses it only in these pastoral epistles. And, I, and my first thought as I was seeing that and came to that realization, I thought of what our, our teenagers experience when they're raised... Uh, in a Christian home and they're raised in a, in a good church and, and they see that there's all this positive to their faith. Um, sort of a protected bubble as we so often as parents try to do with our kids. That their experience in growing up as a Christian is, 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 is not really met with a lot of resistance. And that, uh, boy, probably everybody believes like us. And, and I'm surprised not everybody in our town goes to our church because I thought everybody goes to church. And there's, they don't always say it, but there's that kind of thing in the back of their head. So that the minute they go to a place like a secular college campus, which happens now every day, where you go and now you're in the minority in terms of those that even believe in a God, something bigger than yourself. And then all of a sudden you start sharing things and then they go, wait a second, you really believe animals came two by two and marched in a boat and it floated along and saved all mankind. That's adorable. And they start going, it does sound a little childish, doesn't it? Sounds a little weird, silly. And that instant resistance creates a doubt that starts to shake the foundation because I haven't really thought about the fact that I'd have to defend this stuff. And now everybody that has a counter argument sounds like they know so much more than you do. And Paul is saying to Timothy, there are going to be times where you're going to get shaky. There are going to be times where you're going to start to doubt that what we're saying is real. Timothy, these are trustworthy statements. Anchor your leadership in these statements. Don't fall away from them. Another interesting term, I think, that comes in verse 1 is he says any man aspires to the office or it's a fine work that he desires to do, that aspires and desires. To me, weirds me out a little bit because what we see is specifically, I guess, it's kind of like an American trait that the, the, the higher up the ladder you climb, how much more your ego gets full. And so it's a difficult thing for me to reconcile that it's okay for us to want the office of a leader. It's okay for us to aspire to the thing that would uh, cause, uh, give the church direction and it not be somehow um, uh, tainted by my own uh, uh, desire to be elected to something, to my own desire to be in charge of something. Like, you know, and it's funny, don't we see it in the smallest of clubs? You know, the little civic clubs that we do or the little uh, activity clubs or the things that we just are a part of. And the minute you start putting a political thing that somebody gets elected to and there's a popularity thing, it does weird things with us. And you're like, you're the president of the chess club and you're acting like you're King Tut. What's going on here? Like, I don't understand why that's going to your head, but it just does something in us. And so I appreciate Paul saying it's okay to aspire to something godly. 
It's okay to set your target or your sights on something that's godly because when you set your sights on something that is godly, he balances out the ego stuff. He starts to humble you real quick saying, if you're doing this for me, don't worry, I'll make sure that you don't, you don't carry a big chip on your shoulder like, look, they're all listening to me right now. He makes sure that goes away. And you see Timothy needing a lot of encouragement as, as he goes through this. He needs, he needs to understand that the qualifications of the list that Paul is giving to him are qualifications of character, not of talent, not of birth stock, not of any of these things. He says, Timothy, these are qualifications that can be developed. And so find people that have the raw materials, but also hold a higher standard over them saying, this is what God requires for the leadership of his church. And yes, you can attain to this level if you set your heart on it. Now we have to wrap this up. And so we'll be uh, going into a lot more of this next month. But I just want to make the point that, yes, the text is specifically talking to those aspiring to the office of an elder. And then right on the heels of this, beginning in verse 8, it goes into the, a very similar description of those that would be uh, chosen as deacons, having very similar qualifications. So if you want to uh, get extra credit, you can read ahead and figure out the difference between the elders and the deacons and that kind of thing. Nerds. Um, but, uh, no, just kidding. Um, but it's a very interesting study. But if you think about it, I think at Faith we have seven seats on our elder team right now. And I'm pretty sure that it, uh, what it is in our bylaws is it's a ratio. It's not like you have to have five lay elders and two pastoral elders. But it's a certain ratio to every pastoral elder you have and that kind of thing. Right now we have seven um, elders on our team, including Pastor Bill and myself. And uh, so why would I be preaching through a series that talks about, wouldn't it be great to have more qualified elders if all the seats are taken? So it gets you all ramped up and goes, okay, and then we've got nowhere to exercise this. The reason why I'm drawn to 1 Timothy 3 as we go through this series is because I believe that these qualifications reveal the heart of God of what he wants to see in leadership. I am praying that you find application in um, your ministries here at Faith with these qualifications. I pray that you find applications to your family life as you go home, to your jobs, uh, to your communities as you look to, to be involved with your neighborhoods and things like that, that you would say, okay, I can't just define leadership the way I want to or that naturally suits my talents or my gifts. What does God really want in a leader? I think as we go through these things, you're going to discover that it's not just about being an elder in a church, but instead it's about you and I taking the responsibility for the places that we have uh, been uh, laid under our care and saying, I want to honor the Lord in my, in my talents, in my treasures, in the time that I have, in the abilities that I have yet to develop. I want to give the Lord all of those things and have him make me the leader he wants me to be. And I believe that's a calling all of us should share and strive for. Would you please stand and we'll close out our time in prayer. Our Lord God, we thank you, God, for this time together. We thank you for the standard you've given to us in your word. We pray, God, humble us to make us faithful to it. Help us not to interject our own human thinking, our own uh, wayward, uh, uh, skewed views on things, Lord, but just adhere to the true intent of your passage to us, Lord. Pray that you continue to bless faith with strong leadership, both in its in its pulpit, in its uh, ministry teams, in its in its head of uh, all of these different departments, but also, Lord, so much strong leadership just in the folks that are serving and going through the struggle as well. So we thank you, Lord, for gifting uh, this church 
with the presence of these leaders. But we pray, Lord, you'd help us not to rest on our laurels, that we would trust you to develop a future generation of leaders for the longevity of your church here in this area. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.